0: Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. For thousands of years, people in various cultures have believed in reincarnation, and in the 1950s, a Colorado housewife named Virginia Ty underwent a series of hypnotic regressions in which she reported memories of being an Irish woman named Bridie Murphy in the 1800s. It set off a major sensation
1: in American culture known as the Bridie Murphy craze.
0: Jimmy, what can we say about reincarnation from the reason perspective? Evidence typically is offered in one of three forms. It could
1: be philosophical evidence, it could be bodily evidence, and it could be mental evidence. It would be better for reincarnation advocates to try to prove their case by pointing to empirical evidence because the philosophical arguments are shot through with holes. Without verification from the historical record, such memories are not to be trusted. You need verifiable details that could not be guessed by random chance. We really need to give Maury Bernstein credit. He really wanted this kind of investigation to be conducted, and he repeatedly asked her about things that could be verified or falsified. As we'll see next episode, he even tried to trick her into contradicting herself. I can't think of another case in the popular press where a reincarnation researcher tried to make that kind of verification or falsification possible. So that makes the Brighty Murphy experiments an unusually good test case. In our next episode, we'll look at what the historical record says and how well what Virginia Ty reported under hypnosis stacks up against it. We will also be looking at reincarnation from the faith perspective.
0: And we're back, which is ironic given we're talking about reincarnation. You're listening to episode 94 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about evidence for and against reincarnation, including the famous case of Bridie Murphy. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. In the 1950s, the idea of reincarnation burst into the American consciousness in a dramatic way. A Colorado housewife named Virginia Ty underwent a series of hypnotic regressions in which she reported being an Irish woman named Bridie Murphy in the 1800s. In our previous episode, we discussed the history of the Braddy e. Murphy case and we looked at some of the arguments for reincarnation, including philosophical arguments and arguments based on things like birth defects, personal preferences, and reported memories of past lives. We concluded that the only way to provide significant support for reincarnation would be if we could find recovered memories that matched up with the historical record and that couldn't be explained in a natural way. Can we find such memories? And what does the faith perspectives have to say about reincarnation? And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, let's use the Brady Murphy experiments as a test case for whether past life memories can be matched up with a historical record. Did Brady Murphy report anything that turned out to be true?
1: She reported a number of things about Ireland that were true, such as the names of cities like Cork and Belfast but these were common knowledge in America at the time. Perhaps the most dramatic thing she got right was the name of a newspaper, the Belfast Newsletter. This is, though, a famous newspaper. In fact, it's the oldest English-language newspaper still in print. It began publishing in 1737, so Virginia Time may have heard of it. Also, newsletter is not an unexpected name. I mean, lots of places have newsletters, and so it could have been a lucky
0: guess. So what else does the historical record reveal about the Bridie Murphy case? it
1: does not provide a good basis for belief in reincarnation. Before we go further, I want to remind listeners that they need to be careful in reading further about this case because the Hearst reporters for the Chicago American did a really poor job and possibly a fraudulent job in investigating this case. So if you're doing further research and you encounter the words Hearst or Chicago American, you need to be really careful. Uh, Any claim coming from those sources should be set aside unless it's confirmed by another independent investigation.
0: So what kind of things did Maury Bernstein ask Virginia Ty to recall so that they could be checked?
1: Some were items of Irish culture. For example, uh, he asked her to give him some Irish or Gaelic words, which an English speaker like Virginia Ty wouldn't be expected to know. Here's an example of that.
2: What are some Irish words? Oof. Oh. Um, you want to know? Um, oh, it's, um, Colleen, and a, a uh, oh, I try to think of the word for the ghost, um, what do we call a ghost? Oh, I think, Oh, um, a braid. That? What's
0: that
2: word? A braid? What does that mean? Oh, it's a, a little cup that you drink out of and you wish on it. Very very Irish, you know. It's just something we think about all the time. Wish on it. Drink and just wish on a braid. Oh, I can't think.
1: First, notice how uncertain she sounds, injecting things like, oh, you want to know and can't think. In later experiments, she said that her grandfather refused to speak Gaelic, saying it was fit only for the tongues of peasants. So that's a rather convenient excuse for why she wouldn't know much Gaelic. Also, in one experiment, when Bernstein pressed her to find out if there was another Irish word for ghost, she flat out says, quote, if you want to know about the Gaelic words, you'll have to ask somebody else, close quote. One of the words she does come up with, Colleen, refers to an Irish girl, an Irish Colleen. But there are a couple of problems with that. Uh, First, this term is only first recorded as having that meaning in 1823, when Bridie would have been 25 years old. So there's a question about whether she would have even known the term if it was only just starting to catch on at the time. Second, and more importantly, this term was very well known in 20th century American English. So Virginia Ty would have known it, uh, meaning this doesn't give us any real evidence. Ty then tries and fails to remember an Irish word for ghost. In later sessions, she comes up with banshee as an Irish word for ghost. But there are problems here, too. First, banshees aren't simply ghosts. They're female spirits that appear to herald the deaths of people, kind of like the Piper of McCrimmon from the Moonbase episode of Doctor (laughs) Who. In some folktales, Banshees are the ghosts of women who have died, but not in others. They're just female spirits. In any event, Banshee is not simply an alternative term for ghost. Also, Banshee is... Very commonly known in American English, so we would expect Ty to know it just by growing up in America. She then comes up with breit as a word for a kind of wishing cup. Also, not everything she came up with was Gaelic, though. Uh, Some were Gaelic terms, and then some were terms that I guess were supposed to be part of Irish English. In other experiments, she came up with the word tup which she said was an Irish insult, meaning a rounder or person of low moral character. She referred to a handkerchief as a linen. She referred to rivers as lows. She referred to burying people's bodies as ditching them. She referred to an Englishman as a Britisher. She referred to an Irish Protestant as an orange. And she used the expression mother socks as an expression or as an interjection to express frustration.
0: How well do these terms stack up against the historical record. On May 19,
1: 1956, Life magazine published a set of pieces on the Bridie Murphy craze, and they consulted with a variety of experts on Ireland and Irish culture. Here's what they reported about the words Thai used.
0: Folklore scholar Richard Hayward, among others, laughed at Tup, Linen, and Brait, presumably a kind of wishing cup, as being any sort of Gaelic. No Irishman would refer to another as an orange, but always as orangeman or orange woman, he said. And mother socks is most un-Irish sounding, quote. Low simply does not mean river, but lake. Every Irish authority consulted by life agreed that Britisher is an Americanism. Ditch does not mean bury. The only Irish bodies ever ditched in recent history were the thousands who died in the potato famines of 1845 to 47 when mass burials were necessary.
1: So the Gaelic and Irish English expressions that she came up with, with difficulty, do not provide good evidence for Ty being a reincarnation of a 19th century Irish woman. What about other elements of Irish culture? Here's what Brighty says when Bernstein asks her about the custom of holding awake when someone dies.
2: Is there anything else that you can tell us about Irish customs, customs, or traditions in Ireland that you would like to tell us about? Have you ever been to a wake? Oh, yes. Been to the wake before the funeral? Oh, well, with with Brian. There's always the day before they, they take him to ditch them in the grounds. And they always sit around and weep and drink tea, little biscuits, and everybody's unhappy. And the next day, they ditch them.
1: So according to Bridie, people sit around, weep, eat biscuits or cookies, as we call them in America, and drink tea. Yes, that's the beverage of choice (laughs) at Irish Wakes. That's what people are famous for drinking at them. Uh, For purposes of comparison, here's a 19th century account of what happens at Irish Wakes. In the 1879
0: edition of the American Cyclopedia, it says this. In Ireland, upon the death of one in humble circumstances, the body laid out and covered with a sheet except the face and surrounded by lighted tapers is waked by the friends and neighbors. After vociferous lamentations, food and whiskey are indulged in, commonly leading to noisy and even riotous demonstrations. All the efforts of the Roman Catholic clergy toward the suppression of this pernicious custom have proved unavailing.
1: So maybe tea isn't the famous (laughs) drink
0: consumed at
1: Irish wakes. And they're not so much sad tea parties where people weep. They're given to noisy and even riotous demonstrations fueled by whiskey. In fact, a friend from Ireland mentioned to me that they'll often put a bottle of whiskey and a couple of your pipes with you in the coffin to take with you into the afterlife. And that's not unusual. Uh, Historically, every culture has provided the deceased with symbolic grave goods.
0: Anyone who's ever heard the Irish song Finnegan's Wake knows what Irish wake sounds like. It doesn't sound like what uh, writing Murphy describes it. So Uh uh, many people have claimed that under hypnosis, Virginia Ty spoke with an Irish brogue, which she didn't know how to do and that this is evidence for her past life as an Irish woman. What can you tell us about that? It's true that it can be
1: hard to pull off an accent if you haven't practiced it. If you're an American and without any preparation you try to sound Irish, you're likely to sound Scottish or Cockney or Australian or some horrible and unconvincing mix of accents. Same thing happens when British actors on Doctor Who try to sound American. I'm looking at
2: you, (laughs) Perry.
1: We're fortunate that in this case we have a recording, so we can hear Ty's reported brogue and assess it. At this
2: stage, it will be noted that the subject has begun to talk with a slight brogue. Furthermore, as the experiment progresses, her Irish lilt becomes even more distinct as she drifts more and more into the identity of Bridie. And during a later experiment, when a different technique was employed, her brogue became very pronounced. Are there any other Irish customs or traditions that you can tell us about? Oh, uh, dance when you're married.
1: What do they call it?
2: Oh, it's just a Irish jig thing. You dance and they put money in your pockets, the bride. It's a party. And everybody gives their money and that way you have a gift, you see. It's People, it wouldn't send you
1: other gifts. Except for the O, oh, which is a stereotype in America of how Irish people talk. I don't hear anything that sounds distinctly Irish. It sounds very American to my ears. Of course, the narrator says that she developed a much stronger brogue in a later experiment, but we don't get to hear that. Also, the other experiments were recorded months apart. And Ty easily could have prepped herself, even inadvertently, for speaking with a more pronounced brogue just by thinking about Ireland and Irish people in the intervening months.
0: One of the things Bernstein tried to do was find out about prices at the time, which also would be something that could be verified. What did he discover?
1: Brighty said that she bought a camisole, a kind of sleeveless women's undergarment, at a women's apparel shop called Caden's House. Uh, He had a really hard time getting the price of the camisole out of her. Unfortunately, I don't have a recording of this, but I do have a transcript, so let's you and me read it. Okay.
0: About how much money did you pay for a camisole? Uh, it, it was, oh, it was,
1: oh, it was less than, oh, I don't, it wasn't,
0: it was over a pound. It, It was over a pound? Oh, I can't... A pound in how much? You see, we had a... a,
1: An arrangement where Brian... He handled things for them. And it was not the same for anything he got. That's why he did the shopping. He had places where he had to buy the things because he had an arrangement with the proprietors.
0: I understand. You know, and I can't remember... A pound and about how much? Hmm. Hmm. I'd say... Just about how much?
2: Hmm.
0: Sixpence.
1: Twas over a pound, and I'm not...
0: Uh, About a pound and sixpence?
1: About. Maybe. I wouldn't want you to tell them that I said they that I paid that much, though.
0: So she's really uncertain, but she eventually says the camisole cost a pound and six pence. does the historical record reveal? According to the Life magazine investigation, there is no record of any shop called Caden's House. One pound for a camisole was an impossibly high price for that era. So no such shop and the price was way too high. Last episode, you mentioned that at one point Bernstein tried to trick Ty into changing her story. What happened on that occasion?
1: He'd previously quizzed her about her family members and established that her grandfather, father, and older brother were all named Duncan. He also established that her father and brother were both barristers, which, again, for Americans means they were lawyers who practiced in court or before the bar. But when he reintroduced the question, the transcript says this.
0: All right, was Duncan, your brother, a cropper like his father? This question was purposely slanted to explore further Duncan's occupation. It is to be noted here that Bridie made no reference to her former allegation that Duncan was also a barrister.
1: Yes, he was. He was supposed to be. That's the way it went.
0: All right, now what kind of crops? Well, there was... oh... It it was
1: divided off. There was flax and there was hay and there was some way in the back there was some tobacco and there was corn and did i say flax
0: so she forgot that her father and brother were
1: both lawyers Yes, now she says they were both farmers who grew crops. Needless to say, this kind of change in occupations, complete with crop descriptions, casts serious doubt about these being actual memories as opposed to just things she's imagining because the hypnotist wants her to. Are there other holes in Braddy's story? There are lots of them, but I don't want to drag this out by focusing on each individual one. Instead, I'd like to conclude by briefly noting some major facts. Virginia Tye said that she had been born Bridie Murphy in Cork in 1798. There is no baptismal record for a Bridie Murphy in Cork, and there is no record of her family in Cork City directories. She said that she went to Mrs. Strain's day school in Cork. There is no evidence such a school existed. She said she married a man named Brian McCarthy of Belfast. There is no church marriage record of this union. She said Brian published articles in the Belfast newsletter. There are no articles by him in its archives. She said she and Brian lived on Dooley Road. There was no Dooley Road in Belfast. She said that they went to St. Teresa's Catholic Church in Belfast. There was no St. Teresa's Catholic Church in Belfast during Brighty's life, though one was built in 1911. She said the priest at St. Teresa's was Father John Gorin or Gorman. There was no priest by either of these names in Belfast. She said that Brian's colleagues at Queen's University included men named William McGlone, a man named Fitzhugh, and a man named Fitzmaurice. Although Queen's College opened in 1849, it did not become Queen's University until 1908, and its faculty records do not contain the men she mentions. She said she died in Belfast in 1864, there is no obituary or death certificate for Bridie Murphy McCarthy. On every level, her story falls apart. She gives details of Irish speech that don't match the historical record, details of Irish culture that don't match, details of an economic nature that don't match. Bernstein tricked her into forgetting her father's and brother's occupations, turning them from lawyers into farmers, complete with descriptions of what crops they grew. And there are no records of Bridie Murphy herself or the other people mentioned in her story as even existing. So the Bridie Murphy story does not provide us with verifiable historical details that would support the idea of reincarnation. Thus far, I have not found any cases that have verifiable historical details that could not be explained in other ways. But as we talk about reincarnation cases in future episodes, we will be on the lookout for them.
0: Okay. So we do want to take a moment here to first thank our patrons who make this show possible, including this time Alfredo M., Veland F., Maria D., Jacob H., and Laura C. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World and all the shows we do at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And those people are verifiably... True, real people, and we are oh, grateful yeah. for them. <laughs> so, and uh, as we have recently, we want to remind you that our up, our 100th episode is coming, and we're going to have a great celebration as part of that. And we're going to have lots of great uh, things in it. But one of the things we want to include is feedback from you, the listener, on what the show has meant to you and what you enjoy about it, how it's impacted you and others in your life. And you can provide that feedback by leaving a voicemail at a special number we've set up: seven two zero. Two nine five seven 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 six. That's seven two zero two nine five seven 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 six. And we'll put that number in the show notes. It should be in your podcast player right now. You could even click on it right now. Pause the show, click on it right now, and call and leave a message if you wanted. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'd love to hear from you and want to include your feedback in the show. So, Jimmy, what can we say about the reincarnation from the faith perspective?
1: We've got a bunch of myths to clear away here. If you read Western reincarnation literature, you know, New Age books, you'll find a bunch of claims that are flat out false. For example, you'll find claims that at the time of Jesus, Jews believed in reincarnation, that the early Christian writer Origen taught reincarnation, and that the Council of Nicaea struck passages teaching reincarnation out of the Bible.
0: All right, let's look at these one by one. Why do some claim that Jews in Jesus's day believed in reincarnation?
1: First, let's look at what Jews in this period actually believed about the afterlife. There were two opinions. The minority position, which was held by the Sadducees, claimed that there was no afterlife. But except for the Sadducees, all other Jews that we have records of believed in resurrection. This included the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the earliest Jewish Christians. We do not have any records of Jews in this period believing in reincarnation. The claim that some did is based on a misreading of some passages in the Jewish historian Josephus, who lived in the late first century and who was an eyewitness of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. After the Jewish war, Josephus wrote several books with a Gentile audience in mind. Because of the war, Jews had a really bad reputation in the Greco Roman world, and Josephus wanted to do what he could to help rehabilitate their image, to get Gentiles to have a, a more positive opinion of them. So when he described Jewish views of the afterlife, he does two things. First, he just directly says that the Sadduce- Sadducees deny that there's an afterlife. But second, to keep the majority view from sounding too weird to Gentiles, he kind of soft pedals it. He says that we'll live again. He says that if we've lived righteously, we'll come back and have a better life. And he says that after death, we'll come back in another body. What he doesn't mention in these passages, because it would sound too weird to Greeks and Romans, is that the new body we will have is an improved, glorified version of the same body. And he had reason to think that if he'd mentioned this, his Gentile audience would have scoffed. I mean, after all, Look at, like, Acts 17.32, when Paul preaches the resurrection at the Areopagus in Athens, Greeks scoff at him. In most of the passages where he discusses the Jewish view of the afterlife, he omits the fact that you're coming back in the same body. But what he says is an accurate, if partial, description of the Jewish belief in resurrection. After all, I mean, Josephus knew about the resurrection, and he wasn't going to outright falsify what he said about Jewish beliefs. He's soft-peddling it, but he's not lying about it. Josephus had many Jewish critics who regarded him as a traitor and a Roman collaborator. We even know some of his Jewish critics by name, because he talks about them. He also had Gentile critics, like a guy named Apian, against whom he wrote two books defending himself and Jews from Apian's criticisms. Now. If there's anybody whose reputation Josephus cares about more than that of his people, it was his own. He's very preoccupied with his own reputation, so he's not about to say something flatly false about what Jews believed, whether it's the afterlife or anything else. It would be way too easy for his Jewish critics to pounce on it and treat it as evidence of how he's unreliable and not a trustworthy representative of Jews. And his all his Gentile critics would have to do is check with the Jews, say, hey, what do you guys believe about the afterlife? And they would have ammunition to expose Josephus. So consequently, he gives an accurate but not fully explicit account of the Jewish belief in resurrection in most passages. But in other passages, he comes out and says it forthrightly, stating that the righteous quote will quote revive and live again close quote. I've written articles about the first century Jewish beliefs in the afterlife and about what Josephus says, and we'll have links to them in the show
0: notes. What about the idea that the early Christian writer Origen taught reincarnation? First, who was Origen? He was a Christian from the Egyptian
1: city of Alexandria up on the Mediterranean coast at the end of the Nile Delta. He was born around AD 183 and he died around AD 254. So he was active in the as an author in the early 200s. He was a really smart guy and an important scholar and author, but he's not usually considered a church father because he held some eccentric views. But reincarnation isn't one of them. The idea that it was is based on a misunderstanding of something he did believe in, the preexistence of souls. He thought that our souls existed before this life, but in a disembodied form. He did not believe that they came back into body after body, just that they'd been around before without a body. Interestingly, when I did the research that later went into my book, The Fathers Know Best, I discovered something surprising about Origen. He actually criticizes reincarnation more than the other early church fathers. I think it was because he wanted to make it really clear to people that that's not what he believed. So he, he wants to advocate preexistence, but he really dumps on reincarnation. Unfortunately, modern Western reincarnationists aren't typically scholars of early Christian literature, so they just hear the claim that he believed in reincarnation and run with it. But if you get The Fathers Know Best, which we'll have a link to, you can read all the quotes that I have from Origen
0: denying reincarnation. What about the claim that the Council of Nicaea took reincarnation out of the Bible?
1: This claim pops up a number of places, such as in the actress Shirley MacLaine's book, Out on a Limb, where she reports being
0: told, The theory of reincarnation is recorded in the Bible, But the proper interpretations were struck from it during an ecumenical council meeting of the Catholic Church in Constantinople sometime around AD 553, called the Council of Nicaea. That's from her book Out on a Limb, pages 234 and 35. If
1: you're familiar with church history, there are several things wrong here already. First, there were two councils of Nicaea, one in 325, that's the more famous one, and another in 787. The one in 325 occurred just after the era of persecutions has ended, but neither of these Councils of Nicaea occurred in 553. There was a Council in 553, and it was held in Constantinople, but it's called the Second Council of Constantinople, not Nicaea. Councils are named after the places that they're held, so you wouldn't have a Council of Nicaea held anywhere but Nicaea. Neither of the Councils of Nicaea dealt with the subject of reincarnation. We have records, and the surviving records of these councils don't reveal them discussing reincarnation. The Council the book has in mind is actually the Second Council of Constantinople, which did condemn the views of Origin. But as we've seen, reincarnation was not one of these. So even the Second Council of Constantinople did not condemn reincarnation because people didn't believe it, including Origen. Also, the idea that a church council could strike material out of the Bible is nonsense. Christians who had come through a period of intense persecution for their faith regarded the Bible as holy. In fact, they had resisted the efforts of Roman authorities to seize copies of the Scriptures because back then, books were just fantastically expensive. They cost the equivalent of thousands of dollars. And so you couldn't just get a new Bible. And they were incredibly precious resources for local churches. So the Roman authorities would try to seize them to hurt the local churches. And anybody who turned over copies of the Scriptures to the Romans was known as a traditor from which we get the English word traitor. If you handed over copies of the scriptures, you were a traitor. So there is no way Christians would have surrendered their copies of the holy scriptures and let them be mutilated by having parts cut out. Also, there were thousands of manuscripts in circulation, and there was no central registry of them. Even if a council wanted to cut something out of the Bible, it wouldn't have been able to because there would have been no way to find and censor all of the copies. So the claim that a church council, whether Nicaea or Constantinople or anything else, cut something out of the Bible is just nonsense and no no biblical scholars of any persuasion by that.
0: Are there any passages in the Bible that reincarnation advocates appeal to?
1: There are a few one is in John three three where Jesus tells Nicodemus that he can't enter the kingdom unless he's quote born again close quote but he's not talking about having another physical life after this one he's talking about having a new spiritual spiritual birth in this life that's why he goes on to say in verse five that we must be born quote, of water and the spirit. So he's talking about baptism. Also, and this isn't obvious if you just read an English translation, but there's a play on words in the Greek. When he says you must be born again, what he says is you must be born anothen, which and anothen is a word that can mean either again or from above. And so there's a deliberate pun going on here. In the text, Nicodemus, who he's talking to, takes anothin to mean again. And so Nicodemus misunderstands Jesus and finds the idea of being born again absurd. And he says, well, how can a man enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? You know, a preposterous idea. A grown man couldn't possibly even fit in there. But Jesus corrects him. He's not talking about that kind of birth. He's, he, Jesus means you must be born anothin from above which is why he talks about being born of water and the Spirit, where the Holy Spirit comes on a person from above. So neither one of them is thinking about a physical second birth into a new life in a physical body. Another passage that reincarnation advocates appeal to is Titus 3.5, where Paul says that God saved us, quote, by the washing of regeneration and renewal in the Holy Spirit. Reincarnationists argue that the word for regeneration here is palingenesia in Greek, which they say means reincarnation. But the term also just means regeneration, and the reincarnation meaning doesn't fit this context. When Paul speaks of God saving us by the washing of regeneration, he's talking about baptism. Notice that he parallels this washing with renewal in the Holy Spirit— So we have the same elements in this text that we saw in the previous one, water and the Holy Spirit. So we're talking about baptism in this life. We're not talking about being born into a new life.
0: Do reincarnation supporters claim that anybody in the Bible came back as anyone else? There is one, and that's John the Baptist.
1: They'll claim sometimes that he is the reincarnation of Elijah, the Old Testament prophet. The basis for this claim is found in a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew 17 as the disciples are coming down the Mount of Transfiguration where they had just seen Moses and Elijah appearing alongside Jesus. So having just seen Elijah with Jesus, it brings to their minds a prophecy that Elijah would return before the Messiah came. So they're wondering, hey, did we just see the fulfillment of that prophecy? So, they asked Jesus about why
0: the scribes say this will happen, and Jesus replies, I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Because John the Baptist had already been martyred, just
1: as Jesus would be. Reincarnation advocates also link this passage to Luke 1, where the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that John the Baptist "...will
0: be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children." So they then
1: take the word spirit to indicate that John the Baptist will have the same human soul as Elijah, since he's got the spirit and power of Elijah. There are several things to note here. The first is that it doesn't say John the Baptist has the human soul of Elijah. It says he'll go in the spirit and power of Elijah, saying in the spirit isn't the language of the spirit being in you you are in the spirit. It's like the spirit is enveloping you. So that's different than the language of having a human soul in you. It also links to the power of Elijah, who had had a very powerful ministry in ancient Israel. So what spirit was it that was empowering John the Baptist's ministry? The answer is given earlier in the text. It's the Holy Spirit. It says that he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb, and as a consequence, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to God. It then says he'll go before God in the spirit and power of Elijah, and so he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Notice the parallelism. After both references to the Spirit, we have a reference to John turning people's hearts in a positive direction. So it's the same Spirit we're talking about. Not the human soul of Elijah, but God's Holy Spirit. Further, back on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples' question about Elijah was prompted by the fact that they had just seen Elijah with Jesus. They didn't see a disembodied John the Baptist. They saw Elijah in his original body. That's because Elijah never died. Look it up. It's in Second Kings 2. So Elijah couldn't reincarnate as John the Baptist. He was taken directly to heaven he never died and that's why the disciples saw him on the mount of transfiguration but when you're looking it up in second kings 2 notice something elijah's assistant elisha makes a request of him as he's about to be taken up into heaven
0: elijah said to elisha ask what i shall do for you before i am taken from you and elisha said I pray you, let me inherit a double share of your spirit. And he said, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen and he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces, and he took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him, and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha.
1: Not only did Elijah not die, this passage makes it clear what the spirit and power of Elijah means. Elisha requested a double portion of Elijah's prophetic spirit and he got it as the sons of the prophets recognized. But Elisha didn't inherit Elijah's human soul because he didn't need one. He was already alive and had his own soul. What he wanted and got was a double portion of the divine spirit empowering Elijah's ministry. And that's the key to understanding both of the Elijah passages in the New Testament. It was prophesied that John the Baptist would inherit the spirit and power of Elijah, just like Elijah's assistant Elisha did. And that's why Jesus could say John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy, because he had the same prophetic spirit as Elijah. Just to put a cherry on the top, John was specifically asked if he was Elijah, and he said no. In John 1, verses
0: 19 to 21, we read, And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed, he did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not.
1: So John denied being Elijah, and Elijah never died, meaning he never reincarnated. What happened is that John, like Elisha, received special power from the Holy Spirit to enable him to function as a powerful prophet.
0: If we don't have evidence in the Bible supporting reincarnation, what other arguments should we consider from the faith perspective? I want to propose two, and the first is what you
1: might call Aiken's wager. It's an argument I developed back when I was a grad student in philosophy, and I did a special project, a special study project on Pascal's wager which was an argument proposed by the French Catholic philosopher Blaise Pascal. According to Pascal's wager, if you can't decide between belief in God and skepticism based on the evidence you have, if you feel like, I, I, I don't know how to process this, or I feel torn both ways, I've got evidence on both sides, what you should do is wager that God exists. If you bet right and God does exist, you'll go to heaven, which is infinite gain. But if you bet wrong and God doesn't exist, then you won't have an afterlife, in which case you won't lose anything. I've simplified that a little bit, but that's the basic idea that wagering that God does exist is in your self-interest if you can't decide based on the evidence. Now, I realized in grad school that you could extend this type of reasoning, which is known as uh, pragmatic reasoning as opposed to evidential reasoning. You could extend this type of reasoning to other religious questions, like whether reincarnation happens. You could either, if you don't feel the evidence settles the matter, you could either wager that reincarnation is true and you'll get another life, or you can wager that it's not true and this life is the only one you have. If you wager that reincarnation is not true, then you'll do your best to make this life count. And if it turns out that your wager is right, that reincarnation does not happen, you've done the right thing by trying to make this life count. But if it turned out that your wager was wrong and reincarnation did happen, then it wouldn't matter because you'd get another chance to get it right in the next life. So again, I'm simplifying, but either way, it's in your interest to assume that one life is all you get, so you better make this one count because you may not get another chance. So that's what I'd say to someone who doesn't feel sure about it one way or the other based on the evidence. Make the safe bet and assume you need to make this life count. But if you're coming from the perspective of Christian faith, we do have evidence that settles this question. Where can we find that evidence? It's in the letter to the Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 27 and 28, where
0: we read, and just as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him.
1: The key part of that is where the author to Hebrews says that it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. He's drawing a parallel between ordinary men and Jesus Christ. Jesus died once on the cross and will not die again. In the same way, for ordinary people, we're going to die once, and after that, we're going to be judged. Now, Hebrews was written in Greek in the first century Greco-Roman world, and back In the Greco-Roman world, a lot of people did believe in reincarnation. So the author of Hebrews knew about this concept, and when he says it's appointed for men to die once, after which we're judged by God, he's deliberately excluding the idea that we might have a second chance after death, whether in another earthly life or by any other means. He's saying you need to make this life count, because once we die, we're going to be judged. No second lives, no second chances. So, as in Aiken's wager, you, you better make this life count. Only here, it's not a philosophical argument. It's a teaching of a divinely inspired document. So, from the perspective of Christian faith, we have decisive proof that reincarnation does not happen. As they say, the Bible tells me so.
0: Is there anything else we should say from the perspective of faith?
1: Two things, both of which are follow ups on things I mentioned from the reason perspective. The first, One of the arguments for reincarnation was based on the law of karma and how it might provide an answer to the problem of evil. We saw that this argument doesn't work uh, last episode, but I wanted to mention that Christianity has its own answer to the problem of evil. From the Christian perspective, evil is real, and innocent people do suffer. It's not bad karma always for something you've done in the past. Uh, However, God would not allow evil to exist unless he could bring a greater good out of it. So even when people suffer innocently, God has something better for them. As St. Paul says in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. There's a lot more I could say about the Christian perspective on the problem of evil, and I'd like to recommend that people check out a DVD where I did a talk on this subject a few years ago, and we'll have a link to that. The second follow up deals with how we might explain it if people did come up with memories of a past life that could be confirmed from the historical record. Under the reason perspective, I mentioned several possible explanations for these that were natural. They could be due to hoaxing, they could be due to cryptoamnesia, where you learned something and just forgot that you'd learned it, they could be due to random chance or they could even be due to psychic abilities like remote viewing or telepathy but the faith perspective op- if you know assuming those were real the faith perspective opens up another option demons i didn't mention this then since demons are part of the realm of faith but it's a possibility and if i ran across a case where the natural explanations for verifiable past life memories didn't work i would take seriously the idea that they might be produced by demons Of course, you know, they could still be produced by other paranormal things like psychic abilities. But even though I don't quickly chalk things up to demons, this would be an instance where I would be prepared to look at that possibility if there was no other way to explain it.
0: All right, Jimmy, so what's your bottom line on reincarnation? As interesting as the idea may be,
1: reincarnation doesn't happen. The arguments for it from the philosophical perspective don't work. Neither do arguments about birthmarks, personal preferences, or talents. We don't have evidence of verifiable past life details that can't be explained naturally. In fact, the Bridie Murphy case is positively disconfirmed by the historical record in a bunch, in, you know, bunches of ways. And the faith's perspective gives us decisive evidence that we die once, and then we're
0: judged. So, Jimmy, L. Uh... Can we go over those further resources that we offered last time and maybe have a few more from this episode that we can offer to listeners?
1: Yeah. So uh, we'll have a link to Maury Bernstein's book, The Search for Brighty Murphy. Also my book, The Father's Know Best, where I have all those quotes from the early church writer, Origin condemning reincarnation. So you can see those for yourself. We'll have a link to my DVD on The Problem of Evil. Also episode 52 on hypnosis, as well as articles on Brighty Murphy. Articles I wrote on R- Judaism and reincarnation and Josephus and reincarnation, and a tract I did on what the early church believed about reincarnation. Uh, we'll have articles on the Great Chain of Being, on birthmarks, on twins raised apart, the placebo effect, that 1897 article dealing with what really happens at Irish Wakes, uh, also Life Magazine's investigation of Bridie Murphy. Childhood amnesia, we'll have several pieces on that, as well as a couple of pieces on inherited memories.
0: All right. So we also have uh, some mysterious feedback this week, as we often do, uh, this time covering the episode we did on the Devil's Den, Arkansas UFO encounter. And our first bit of feedback comes from Adam Hovey on YouTube, who says, I've lived in Iowa and Illinois, and a lot of people from there are from Missouri. God bless you for pronouncing it the way you do, because so do a lot of people from there. People think it's like an exaggerated pronunciation, but a lot of people from Missouri say it like that.
1: Yeah, and he's referring to the pronunciation Missouri, uh, which is indeed used by lots of folks in Missouri, as well as in surrounding states like Arkansas and Texas, where I'm from. Yes, I, I, I wouldn't presume
0: to pronounce it to <laughs> the way natives do Brooke Kennel writes on YouTube, Would alien-human hybrids even be possible? I know that until about 10 years ago, a lot of scientists didn't didn't even believe that Homo sapiens could interbreed with Neanderthals. Now we have genetic evidence that they did interbreed with each other and with the uh, Denisovans. Denisovans, yeah. Denisovans. I always get that uh, (laughs) accent wrong. But it would be unlikely with any hominid further away in our genealogical tree, never mind another creature entirely. I suppose, theoretically, scientists could create some sort of hybrid through gene editing, but, and forgive my biological ignorance here, it was not my strong subject in high school, I would imagine there would have to be some basic compatibility between the genes in the first place? Could that even exist for creatures who evolved under entirely different circumstances? So it's highly likely that life, and we'll have
1: a future episode on on life and what's possible, you know, like people have talked about, maybe it could be based on other Chemistries like silicon or something. But actually, there are some problems with that. And it's even though it's not impossible life could have other chemistries, it is very likely that other life would be carbon based like us. And it's got to have some equivalent of DNA. I mean, it may not be exactly like our DNA, it could have different base pairs and stuff, but it's got to have some way of passing on heritable traits from one generation to another. And you're right, aliens and humans could not breed if they're a different species, because that's what a species is, is a population that can breed within itself, but not across species, at least ordinarily, and produce fertile offspring. We wouldn't be able to breed naturally with aliens, but with genetic engineering, you can kludge together just about anything. Here on Earth, actually, we have goats that we have already implanted with spider genes so that the goats make spider silk in their milk. Because it turns out, like, spider silk has a lot, it's really strong, it has a lot of good uses, like you can make Kevlar, better than Kevlar bulletproof vests out of it, but you can't farm spiders, because when they tried to form spiders, the spiders killed each other. (laughs) And so you need more peaceful animals than spiders. And so they said, well, let's take the silk-making genes from spiders and put them in goats. So now when the goats give milk, the milk contains spider silk that they can refine. And, of course, you can farm goats. So we have these spider-goat hybrids. Even though goats are mammals and spiders are arachnids and they're separated by millions of years on the evolutionary tree, So with genetic engineering, you can kludge together genetic information from just about anything.
0: Plus, goats are a lot cuddlier than spiders. (laughs) Yes, they are. (laughs) Uh, Austin Calabat writes on YouTube, great episode, Jimmy and Dom. I finally decided to become a patron after all this time. Keep up the great. Yes. Thank you, Austin. Keep up the great work. Maybe in the future, you two can do an episode on the mystery of the race of giant humans that many archaeologists claim to find proof of. Even the evidence that comes from the Bible can be part of it. Really interested in both your takes on it and think it could make for an interesting episode.
1: Thanks, Austin. Uh, You may have heard our recent episode on the Nephilim, where we did talk about giants in the Bible to some extent, but I am planning a future episode on giants, including these claims about discoveries of giant skeletons and giants in the Bible and giantism in general. Excellent. So, Jimmy, what do we have for Mysterious Headlines this week? Well, if you don't come back in a new body, you probably want to take care of the one you got. And so our first story under Mysterious Headlines is something that could help you do that. You know how on Star Trek they have dermal regenerators when everyone, Mm -hmm. whenever someone gets a cut in their skin? Well, we now have first-generation dermal regenerators or skin printers. So uh, check out that. That could help you take care of your current body. Also, you may need to do other things to take care of your body. And sometimes people think, oh, I don't have enough willpower to, to do what I need. Well, second headline, the biggest myth about willpower may be that you don't have enough. So check that out, and it may help you find some willpower to do some of the things you need to do.
0: Excellent. So, folks, we want to hear from you. We want your feedback as well on this episode and about reincarnation. What are your theories about reincarnation? Let us know uh, online. You can do that by going to sqpn.com slash mysterious and leave a comment there or on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page or by sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or sending a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. What's your, what's your theory about reincarnation? Let us know. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about?
1: Well, since we released this episode on a Monday, we're going to have another Friday episode, and it's going to be a patrons' questions episode. We periodically ask our patrons what questions they'd like to have answered, and we initially let them have exclusive access to it, but eventually we let everybody hear it so you can hear the benefit of being a patron. And if you want to get your own questions answered, by all means, become a patron. We'd love to hear from you and love to answer your questions. Then the week after that, the next Friday, we're going to have an episode on David Koresh of the Branch Davidians, the so-called sinful messiah. What did he believe and what really happened with the Waco siege? We're going to be doing a two-parter on that. And it's going to be really Fascinating. In doing the research, I mean, it's it's a fascinating story, is intense, and it may not be for everyone. So parents in particular may want to listen. We're going to, as always, we're going to keep it clinical, but parents may want to listen and make decisions for their family.
0: All right. So, and I want to remind everyone about that 100th episode we've got coming I mentioned earlier in this episode. So please make sure to send us your feedback uh, at our voicemail number 720-295-7776. That's 720-295-7776. Remember to like this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on our Facebook page, retweet it on Twitter, and and spread it around. Let everyone hear about it, and uh, that helps us get the news out about the show. Uh, You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the Mysterious Headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash Mysterious. And remember, please, to help us continue produce the podcast, visit sqpn.com slash give. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bethanelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest.